Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I am your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas. This is a pre-recorded show which will be uploaded for your listening edification on the evening of Monday, August the 10th, 2020. You can listen live each Monday night from 6 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time at koop.org. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 16th post-COVID show, A New World But the Same Place. So stay tuned. But first, as we do before every bringing light into darkness show, we first go to war. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, with your host, Pedro Gattos. Good evening. A major focus of our Bringing Light into Darkness show content has been on U.S. foreign policy and its impact on third nations. We have been told that our foreign policy is driven by the ethos of promoting democracy and freedom throughout the world. But we have found and documented that this is usually not the case and that the American people do not understand that this is not the case because they are misled by our government press releases and and a mass media that unquestionably and uncritically reports the content of those releases. So tonight's show is focused on some of the methods and means in which our foreign policy is executed, and we are blessed to have with us the distinguished and honorable former foreign minister and former UN ambassador of Ecuador, Guillaume Long, joining us and sharing the Ecuadorian experience in this hemisphere of U.S. influence in trying to make its way to best serve its majority population. We now turn to the content of tonight's show. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness. This is 91.7 KOOP right here in Austin, Texas. Today, it's August the 6th, 2020. My dad passed away a few years ago, but this is his birthday, so this show is dedicated to him. We will be airing this live on Monday, August the 10th. We are very honored to have with us Guillaume Long, Senior Policy Analyst at Center for Economic Policy Research who held several cabinet positions in the government of Ecuador that we'll talk about in just a second. But first of all, Dr. Long, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show. Well, listen, Dr. Long, he held several cabinet positions, I believe, under two different administrations, with Rafael Carrillo's administration, as well as current President Moreno's. He was the U.N. ambassador under Moreno's administration as well, in which he resigned some years ago. He also was the Minister of Foreign Affairs in Ecuador, the Minister of Culture and Minister of Knowledge and Human Talent, and as I mentioned, most recently served as the permanent representative to the United Nations at the UN. His own training is, is in history, where he holds a PhD in international politics from the University of London, and his research focuses primarily on foreign policy of Latin American states, regionalism, and integration in Latin America. Dr. Long also has done a lot of work around the a number of organizations, the Organization of American States, Mercursor, UNICER, 
CELAC and other regional bodies. And so he's been at the highest levels of trying to help to negotiate the best type of quality of life for the citizens of Ecuador for many years. So I wanted to just start off, if I could, with an observation that in our own history in the United States, we've been heavily involved in the southern hemisphere of this hemisphere. In which, chronologically speaking, the United States began to assert its imperial power over Latin and Central America following the Monroe Doctrine of 1823. Essentially, the Monroe Doctrine warned European nations that no longer would the U.S. tolerate their further unfettered colonization of the New World, if you will. The United States not only had joined the international power structure of powers, such as France and U.K., which had largely supplanted the Spanish and Portuguese as the dominant colonizers of the New World, But in fact, as a burgeoning power, the United States was declaring the Western Hemisphere south of the United States its own backyard of potential markets. And there's been a whole kind of evolution of intervention that has occurred over the years. It began mainly with just armed intervention. And then I think as late as the Nicaraguan interventions in the 1920s, we were losing U.S. Marines and That was not good for the public relations of being involved in these other countries in which we sought to have governments that were more comfortable for U.S. investment interests, I I would suggest. But anyhow, eventually what what manifested in this intervention evolution, in this evolution of intervention techniques, was a, a process of creating a school, a School of America's Watch, that actually started to train individuals throughout Central and South America. And actually, their own military institutions became ultimately trained under this kind of umbrella type of system. And it kind of supplanted the older type of intervention without putting at risk the chances of U.S. service people coming back in body bags, so to speak. And then that has changed, has evolved, if you will, that even with the very detailed types of analysis that people like Philip Agee and other people that were firsthand involved in the manipulation of the internal civil politics of nations on behalf of U.S. foreign policy interests, whether they be trade unions, whether they be other trade associations or or those types of things. And in fact, Philip Agee, former CIA agent who spent 12 years as a CIA agent and published in 1975 Inside the Company, a CIA diary, he spent four years in the early 60s in Ecuador. And he details in a separate piece called Terrorism and Civil Society as Instruments of U.S. Policy in Cuba, which was an article he published in May of 2003. He details how the CIA had been deeply involved in secretly funding and manipulating foreign NGOs, non-governmental volunteer organizations. And these vast operations circled the globe, these are his words, and were targeted at political parties, trade unions, as we mentioned, uh, and businessmen's associations, youth and student organizations, women's groups, civic organizations, religious communities, professional intellectual and cultural societies, and the public information media, namely radio and TV. The network functioned at local, national, regional, and global levels. They were 
media operations, he says, were underway continuously in practically every country where the CIA could pay journalists to publish its materials as if they were the journalists' own. So when we talk about the penetration, when we share the concept of penetrating civil society in third countries, this is the whole breadth of civil society penetrated by the CIA and U.S.-related interests. The very things that we accuse other countries of doing without evidence of any substance, we are the experts at, as indicated by Philip Agee and a host of other former CIA agents that became very disillusioned and shared their insights of their work as well. In other words, in method and in practice. We sought to manipulate in the internal foes of other countries the outcomes of elections in a way that would be favorable to what we perceived to be our own interests. And then there was, I guess, what they call the pink tide or whatever you want to call it. There were a lot of countries that were voting in really progressive governments at the turn of the century, and they were making great gains throughout their own countries with respect to the quality of life of their majority populations. I'm not going to go through all of them, but you know, you can measure these things. In fact, the Center for Economic Policy Research, in which uh, Dr. Long works with now, did some great work. There was a PhD. Dr. and economist Jose Antonio Cordero, who basically compared the quality of life for Hondurans pre and post Manuel Zelaya's U.S.-endorsed coup. June 2009 coup and compared how quality of life was with respect to, you know, whether it be literacy rates, whether it be access to s schooling and free lunches, or whether it be poverty rates and those types of things. And there was a very, very clear and very definite improvement in all of these major indices under Zelaya. Three and a half year tenure. Before he was accrued out. Rafael Correa was president in Ecuador for 2007 to 2017. And during that 10-year period of the Citizens Party was in power, the same types of indices. Under Korea's 10 years of leadership, Ecuador's minimum wage more than doubled, billions were invested in health care, and poverty was cut in half. Once Korea's administration ended and Moreno was voted in as president and became U.S. foreign policy friendly, under Moreno, the level of structural poverty increased some 10% from June of 2017 to June of 2019. Extreme poverty also saw a rise of some 8.4% to 9.5% during that same period. And the Gini coefficient, a measure of economic inequality, also increased significantly from 0.462 in June of 2017 to 0.478 in June of 2019. In other words, Moreno's policies of reducing social spending had principally benefited the rich. Uh, this is all documented in the article by Dennis Rogatyuk, R-O-G-A-T-Y-U-K, in his October 7, 2019 article, Ecuadorians Revolt Against Repressive U.S.-backed President Lenin Moreno's Neoliberal Policies. And then even in Bolivia, Evo Morales was president from 2006 to 2019. The same types of quality of life changes that were in the positive were occurring. So under the leadership of President Evo Morales in the 13 years in Bolivia as president, illiteracy in Bolivia was reduced from 13% in 2006 to 2.4% in 2018. Unemployment rates were reduced from 9.2% to 4.1%, the lowest in the region. Moderate poverty was reduced from 60% to 34.6%. Extreme poverty was reduced from 38.2% 
to 15%. By 2019, when he left office, Bolivia was the fastest growing country in the region, raising the GDP to $43 billion, up from some $9 billion in 2005 when the government took office. So as a result, the failure to be able to get into power, the people that serve the best perceived interest for U.S. investment, there was this term that I came across, Guillaume, that I wanted you to speak to. It's called lawfare, where there's actually through judicial and legislative coup-type ways of manipulating the situation to actually outlaw certain people from even running so that you could control who actually would run for office and therefore impact what normally would then be a compromised election and not free and fair. And there's a group, Progressive International, that came out with a letter of concern that they sent to Michelle Bachelet's office at the United Nations. She's the High Commissioner for Human Rights. And then I think it was also co-written to the Special Repertoire Volet her name, I might not be able to pronounce, Clement Nelyatose Vole. She's a UN Special Rapporteur expressing what they call the collapse of democratic institutions in Ecuador. So what I wanted to really start to show with you speaking to, if you would, is Rafael Carrillo was president of Ecuador from 2007 to 2017. The present president, Moreno, was actually his vice president during the first six years of that administration, 2007 to 2013. And subsequently, when he was elected, he had campaigned on the continuation of what was a very promising upward trajectory of quality of life issues for Ecuadorians, but changed his path very quickly. And maybe you can pick it up from there. Can you share with us what the major concerns of the Progressive International is with respect to these maneuvers by the electoral authorities of Ecuador to eliminate certain parties and people from running for office? Sure. So, as you uh, rightly said, I think the 10 years of presidency of Rafael Correa in Ecuador between 2007 and 2017 were unprecedented in terms of the advances of uh, essential human rights, basically. And there was a huge reduction of poverty, unprecedented in Ecuador's history. Also, very importantly, uh, Ecuador was one of the champions, one of the global champions, in the reduction of inequality. It's very important in the context of Latin America because Latin America is still the most unequal region in the world. If you look at averages, Latin America is kind of the global middle class, if you look at the per capita GDP. But of course, that average hides huge disparities between obscene levels of wealth and, uh, you know, shameful uh, levels of, of poverty, of misery. So, and, and, and from that inequality stems a lot of Latin America's pro- structural problems, uh, including a lack of social cohesion, uh, political instability, but also urban violence and all sorts of phenomena such as crime and even narco-trafficking, which is one of the concerns of the United States, you know, is actually um, a lot of academic work on those issues, is actually a result of of inequality even more than it is a result of of poverty. So inequality was a great enemy and a lot of advances in tackling inequality, poverty. And I think, I mean, there are many things that could be said, but maybe two important legacies of the Correa government. Uh, One, you know, in foreign policy that was sovereign, that was about diversifying Ecuador's relations. It was also about creating uh, much more uh, integration and unification of South America and Latin America. And as you said, there were a number of neighbors, 
uh, during those years in Latin America that were like-minded and believed that imperialism is always stronger when it applies divide and rule policies. Uh, so if you're divided, then you're likely to sort of, you know, go down the road of uh, the race to the bottom, right? You compete with your neighbor, and in competing with your neighbor for the favors of the great power, you open yourself up more to capital, you you make your labor force more, uh, more cheap, essentially, and so you, you make it, uh, you take away uh, rights in order for investment and capital to come your way. You, may, you, you might even tax capital less because you want capital to come in your country and your, in your neighbor's country, but then your neighbor does the same thing, you know, a sort of a, a constant race to the bottom to see, to see who opens themselves up the most and who is the most vulnerable and the most seductive to, to transnational capital. So we understood that this was the recipe for disaster, and this is what happened in Latin America for many years, many decades, and that united, we could obviously change that, and together, Latin American countries could impose conditions on, you know, on capital, but also on, on, on certain powers, on, or at least be less, certainly be less vulnerable, be less weak. So that's one of the great, I think, important pillars, aside from the more social element, the social side of the Correa government. I think there's an important element linked to foreign policy, geopolitics, sovereignty. You know, there was a big U.S. military base in Ecuador until 2009, until we said, well, thank you very much, but no thank you, right? And uh, that was important. The, the Assange story is also uh, quite well known. It has had quite a lot of media coverage. The fact that we gave Julian Assange asylum, which was quite daring for a small country like Ecuador, and uh, it created some resistance in the United States. And then finally, on the economic front, I think it's very important to understand that I think maybe our greatest legacy is to have proven to the world that neoliberalism, you know, it's, it's often not the term used in English or in the United States, but you know, whatever you want to call it, deregulation, you know, the small state, uh, what we inherited from Reaganomics and from Thatcherism. Well, it's, I think it's harmful in all contexts, but it's certainly harmful in the developing world. You already have an absence of state. If you want to make an already absent state even smaller, that's a recipe for anarchy, for disaster, and for making powerful actors even more powerful and weaker actors even weaker. So I think we implemented policies that were not neoliberal, and we demonstrated that neoliberalism is not just unfair, clearly unfair from the point of view of workers, from the point of view of vulnerable people, but it's actually not the intelligent form of capital accumulation, right? Mm -hmm. And even following sort of orthodox indicators, you know, like GDP growth and things that uh, mainstream economists kind of tend to privilege, you know, our results were better. Our post-neoliberal anti-austerity uh, results were much more impressive. We had growth. We had a thriving economy. We had a lot of public investment. We built a lot of infrastructure. During the 10 years of Korea, Ecuadorian GDP doubled. So I think a third important legacy of Korea's 10 years in government is the uh, economic legacy. It's probably one of the most important ones because, of course, the left in power you know, has to prove that it can manage the economy. You know, the right often tries to portray the left as having, you know, in the best case scenario, good intentions and wanting to do good, but really not quite knowing how to do that or how to manage the economy, how to create jobs, how to generate growth. Well, you know, the bad news for the right is that uh, Ecuador had never grown as much as under Correa. You know, the 80s and the 90s, which were dominated by right-wing neoliberal governments, 
you know, with the deregulation and, uh, you know, Latin America's version of Reaganomics or Thatcherism, if you, if you like, uh, those 20 years were disastrous economically. There was no growth, in fact, much less growth than we'd, we'd had prior in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And they were particularly harmful socially because they were marked by the failure to reduce poverty. And poverty went up and down depending on the year you look at in the 80s and 90s, but overall, Poverty was not significantly reduced. But the big failure was the failure to reduce inequality. In fact, inequality rose systematically throughout the 80s and 90s. So we wanted an economic model that would be successful, even in orthodox terms, if you like, you know, following the normal metrics of neoliberals and following the normal metrics of mainstream economists. So GDP growth, investment, those kinds of things that matter to, I would say, mainstream economists. At the same time, as we reduced poverty, as we reduced inequality, as we made Ecuador more inclusive. And I think that is the real success story of the Correa years. Yeah? It was one of the champions at uh, economic growth. Our GDP doubled in 10 years when we uh, came to power in 2007. Ecuadorian GDP was just under 50 billion. By the time Correa uh, handed over power to his successor in 2017, it was over 100 billion. So it doubled the size of the Ecuadorian economy uh, at the same time as it significantly reduced inequality. Inequality being so important because, of course, Latin America is the most unequal region in the world. And a lot of Latin America's problems stem from inequality, particularly inequality in the urban context. Few people know that, but Latin America is actually the most urbanized region in the world with over 65% of the population living in large cities. And, you know, large cities with inequality is a recipe for disaster, for lack of social cohesion, for petty crime, for violence, for all sorts of things, right? So fighting inequality was really important. And, you know, even when the commodities decline hit Ecuador, sure, the 2015 and 2016 were not good years in terms of growth. But we showed that post-neoliberal economics or anti-neoliberal economics was good in times of, in good times, when our exports were high, when we were making money, when oil prices were high, it was good. But it was also good at times of crisis, at times of hardship, because, so, you know, we had anti-cyclical policies, we, we invested, we, we beat the cycle, you know, we made sure that we stimulated the economy instead of succumbing to austerity measures, making the cycle longer. Mm -hmm. And I think that was really important. In fact, even 2015 and 2016, which were really hard years with a really difficult external shock, you know, the, the, the prices of oil collapsed from $90 a barrel in the end of 2014 to just over $20 a barrel six months later, uh, which in the history of Ecuador, every time that happened, you had a huge spike in poverty and inequality. Well, this case we still managed to sustain the reduction of poverty. Uh, poverty was reduced at a lesser rate, but we still managed to sustain that. So I think that's one of the great successes of the, of the Correa decade, and that's why Lenny Moreno was elected in 2017 as Correa's successor, because the electorate chose continuity. You know, they wanted someone from the same party following through the same project, uh, the same ideas, that Correa had pursued for 10 years. Unfortunately, Moreno was elected, and a few weeks after his election, started this U-turn, this turn away from Correa's policies, adopting neoliberal structural adjustment program within a few months, 
the IMF was back lending money and imposing conditionalities and imposing austerity measures and social cuts and welfare cuts and, and all the usual programs the IMF have been famous for implementing. Uh, that on the economic front and on the political front, Moreno started persecuting viciously, very aggressively, Correa himself, but also Correa supporters, Correa collaborators, through essentially through the judiciary, through lawfare, through uh, attacking uh, these people to make sure that they weren't a threat, essentially illegalizing the opposition, if you like, criminalizing the opposition, making sure the opposition isn't a threat and that the key uh, leaders in opposition are, in, in most instances, abroad, in exile, you know, away from national politics. Yeah. Let me just go ahead and ask this then. So one of the things that you're mentioning, which I think is really important, and correct me if I'm wrong, but with neoliberalism, what happens is that the state gets its economy, its its economics kind of removed from its disposition. There's more privatization and all of those things. But also, you mentioned something that I think is really important. It's called the diversification of production, I think, where we know Ecuador, or people should know that it's primarily an oil-producing country, but under the Caria administration, correct me if I'm wrong, under any administration, being able to diversify protects an economy from the ups and downs of world market prices and those types of things. Traditionally, in my studies of, and I cut my teeth in Central America in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, but overwhelmingly, those countries were created in the image of U.S. investment capital and they almost overwhelmingly were like one or two crop economies, whether it be coffee, bananas, in the Caribbean it was more sugar. But when your economy is being shaped not by what's best for the people in your country, but most attractive to U.S. investment, it appears that there seems to be a pointing towards one or two products rather than the diversification you were talking about. Is that true? And was that an, And is that a major difference that you see between when you say Moreno took, you know, a 180-degree turn, is that consistent with what you feel is this economic trajectory now that, that there's a lot less diversification? Yeah, for sure. So I think neoliberalism implies a number of things, and certainly in the case of Ecuador, you've already mentioned some of them, privatization, cutting down on on uh, social welfare provision, on social programs. Uh, you know, Moreno's actually just gotten rid, he hasn't done it directly, but he's de facto gotten rid of the minimum wage in Ecuador. You know, very serious things that essentially make the situation of workers more precarious and also deregulating uh, the free flow of financial capital, which means that you have greater amount of tax evasion, money leaving the country, going to tax havens in the Caribbean and in the United States and in Europe. And, you know, this is basically letting the market do its magic, except uh, no magic really coming up from uh, sheer market forces, particularly when you're in a developing state, because the market forces means that capital leaves your country and goes elsewhere, right? So th that's the kind of neoliberalism we're, we're talking about. Uh, Mr. Foreign Minister, let me interrupt you right there. We need to take a short break for the cause, and we will be right back. We have the great honor of visiting with Guillaume Long, former foreign minister of Ecuador. You are listening to the premier community radio station of the nation, 91.7 KOOP, right here in Austin, Texas. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. This is your host, Pedro Gatos. We'll be back right after this. <laughs> 